This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Dr. Kelly Clark on his book, God and the Brain, The Rationality of Belief. Many skeptics label religious belief as a psychological crutch, a form of wish fulfillment, or even a brain spasm. But do recent developments in the study of the mind indicate a logic to faith? Well, Dr. Clark connects philosophy and science to explore complicated questions about the nature of belief and the human mind. So we welcome once again to Common Threads, Kelly Clark. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Fred. Thanks for having me back. Certainly. We ended our session last week talking about uh, physical phenomena that can possibly affect the brain to imagine a religious experience. And then we also talked about what very well could be a religious experience. And uh, one of the things we talked about was, for instance, uh, meditation. Meditation can actually uh, affect the brain. Uh, it's, it's something that science has pretty much guaranteed us, that group ritual can affect the brain. And I want to talk about uh, those two, because uh, I, I had questions and then we ran out of time. One thing I wanted to share was I have several friends of mine uh, who started on their spiritual path because they took LSD. This is, you know, back in the 60s. No, I've got a couple of those friends, too. Yeah, yeah. And they do believe that even though it was drug-induced, something opened up. But they realized a couple of things. And George Harrison talked about this as well because he went from taking acid to uh, uh, finding a religious path. Is that you can't do that for the rest of your life. You can't keep taking acid and continue to have uh, these experiences. And, of course, you can always have a bad trip, you know. Um, But I find it fascinating that something did happen it was drug induced but it for these people it opened up something real and they decided that whatever it is i believe i can try to find it without the drug so tell me about your experience with any of your uh, friends you say that have done that i thought you were going to say tell me about your experience with lsd <laughs> uh i so I, I will say, you know, in the book I talk about, in general, I try to get off the sensational uh, things like that in the very first chapter and say, uh, these are all really cool and interesting. Um, but what happens in most of us most of the time is much more mundane, that we have kind of normal belief-producing mechanisms um, that are that kick in in various circumstances. Um, and so I'm, tr- I'm trying to understand those. Uh, and yet... So I'm, I'm not going to endorse or not um, people taking LSD. I don't want anybody uh, taking my advice on this. 
I, I will just say this. Uh, every time somebody experiences God, it's mediated through the brain. And um, I think what a lot of people want to think is that religious experiences are sort of souls independent from bodies. And, um, and, they, and, and then, so I think some people are sort of afraid if you find out that a drug could trigger something, uh, a belief, or um, that an electromagnetic wave could do it, or that uh, an epileptic seizure could do it. Well, none of that surprises me. Uh, all of those can induce sensations of trees, and there are trees. Um, our brains are really centrally um, important in our beliefs. We're, we're creatures with bodies, and um, we just don't have experiences that are that sort of float free of our our brains, our bodies. We don't have a mind, I think, that floats free. Um, again, I don't really talk about that much in here. Uh, in this book, but I, I'm, but I, by and large, I'm more concerned with the kind of um, normal. I understand ways that people approach God, yeah. and and uh, when thinking about those um, extracurricular activities that might encourage something like a, a spiritual experience, I think of the the saying, "The existence of fool's gold does not negate the reality of real gold." Yeah. Yep. Um, we talked about the God helmet last, uh, last week. How about the God gene? Uh, well, that it was one of the most sensational. Uh, there was a claim by Dean Hammer and he wrote a book called the God gene. My guess is he regrets that it was called that, but uh, my guess is also that his publisher said, yeah, we have to call it that. <laughs> right. That'll sell a lot of books. And it made the cover of time magazine. Um, but turns out, so the claim is, and Hamer is also famous for claiming that to have discovered the gene for homosexuality, um, and that's been widely discredited. Uh, and, and I don't mean to say that what's been discredited is that there might not be a genetic basis. It's that he didn't discover it, and almost any time someone claims there's a gene for that, you're probably wrong, <laughs> right. uh, and you should probably look at the evidence. Sure. Um, and uh, he claimed to have found the God gene. He he claimed that people that had this gene were way more likely to be religious, and people who don't have the gene are um, likely not to be. And he identified the gene. And, but it turns out that uh, we talked about atheism last week, and uh, the people that report self-report that they're atheists. Well, when I wrote the book, it was 2.5%. Worldwide, it actually is a very low figure. Um, in, in Europe and the United States, um, that figure certainly misrepresents the number of atheists. At any rate, uh, Dean Hamer relied on a lot of self-reports of people, and then he took uh, religion to be a sort of really weird category in which he threw all sorts of funny things. So the the God gene has been thoroughly debunked. Um, Dean Hamer is a first-rate uh, geneticist. I think he works for a government. Well, I just said government lab, and, th and that's going to make a lot of people suspicious. But I think otherwise, he's done a lot of really good scientific work in genetics. But you he know, just I, misstepped on homosexuality and God. But I use the <clears throat> the term God gene an awful lot. So, for instance, I would say informally now, not speaking scientifically, I'd say you and I have share the God gene. And I would also say that I know people who identify as 
completely secular, whether you call them humanists or atheists or agnostics, but they have this deep passion for discovering truth and are very philosophically minded. And I would say that they have the God gene more, I don't know if you can qualify that, but uh, uh, let's uh, you know grab the average schmo off the street who self-identifies as Christian or Jewish or Hindu or whatever, but it doesn't mean anything in their lives. You know, they, they, they may go to church on occasion or they may acknowledge, yeah, there's a God, but it, it doesn't, they're not passionate about it. Yeah. The way people in our circles tend to be passionate about it. But again, I'm not speaking scientifically. I'm just saying that there is something about being in the company of people for whom spirituality and religion means a great deal. Yeah. So I think, so I, I look at the kind of normal cognitive faculties that incline people to religious belief. And to me, the one of the interesting things it shows is that it can be, religious belief can be just skin deep and probably it's just skin deep for for most people. And so people will report that they're religious or that they're Christian or that they're Buddhist or, or something like that. But it won't mean much more than that um, they believe it. They really do believe it. Um, but it doesn't, it's not really very formative for them. And uh, one of the reasons it's not so formative for them is uh, it's probably true that early human groups, uh, as they were, especially as early human groups were forming into cities around 10,000 BC, uh, early human groups that had religious beliefs were more successful than early human groups that didn't. And early human groups that had um, religious beliefs, like belief in an uh, not in omnipotence, but in a, a power, a divine power, um, not necessarily in perfect, perfect goodness. Uh, a lot of early so-called gods were evil, but the early human communities that had belief in a God with a lot of power who was on the side of good. And also again, not omniscience, but who knows lots of things. So the key thing is uh, who knows what everyone is doing when other humans aren't looking. That was a huge advance for early human groups because um, it was hard to know who you could cooperate with. Any other human being is a possible competitor. And uh, the there, there was cooperation among early human beings, but there also was a lot of violence, including violence among kin. So who you could trust was a really big issue. Well, early groups that sort of laid off who you could trust trust to God did better than groups that didn't. And, um, and so this is, some people think this solves the problem of human cooperation, which has been a huge puzzle for people evolutionarily. How could selfish people who natural selection has built into a survival of the fittest? How could, how could people like that cooperate in early in human communities? Um, well, the earliest ones, one answer looks like to be if you think there's a God who knows what you do and will punish you if you're bad and reward you if you're good, if you think that, and then you're part of a group that thinks that, well, and, and then you and I do things. We do, we have, we do religious rituals together. So I, I see that you're committed to that, and you can see that I'm committed to that God. Uh, those groups tended to be more cooperative and um, 
they tended to be more successful against other early human groups that didn't have those beliefs. And and, no, go on. I was just going to say, so here's some experiments that were done to show this, um, or to show parts of it. This was all built up in parts. So they had a, um, in a fraternity house, they had one fraternity house where they had uh, a refrigerator and a sign on it that said, uh, soda's $1. And then they had a collection can and they had a, they could tell how many people bought them by how many they had and how many, how much money was in the collection can. They did another fraternity house where they said, so does $1 and they put two eyeballs on the sign and um, paying for your sodas dramatically increased when there were just two eyeballs on on the (laughs) sign. And uh, they, they would do things with um, uh, children where, uh, and they can do it with college students, but where you take a test, you'll have one where just two eyeballs go, just bob across the screen, and cheating goes down. There's a way to cheat on these tests, and they tell students, don't do it. If this, the answers are going to pop up, just hit this key, they'll go away. If two eyeballs are going across the, the test, people are less likely to cheat than people that don't have the eyeballs. Or if people are primed with the belief that uh, there might be a ghost in the room who sees what you do. At any rate watched people are better people and so if you think god is watching you you're likely to be better um so that's one and then you can look at each part each part of that has been studied psychologically if god is watching you if god can punish and reward if um uh, the list goes on but and, and then the roles rituals might play in us figuring out it like if you're really committed to that god belief um, that helps me to know I can trust you, especially as human groups get bigger and bigger. You know, early human groups probably were 35 to 50. Around 10,000 B.C. with the agricultural revolution, they got a lot bigger. And so you had to know, like, who here is not going to steal your food or uh, take your children or your wife? If you're just joining us, you're listening to WGVU's Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Dr. Kelly James Clark. He is the author of God and the Brain, the Rationality of Belief. You, you mentioned in the book, this, this tags perfectly with what you just said, that a punitive God is more powerful than a compassionate God, right? So yeah. uh, I'm, I'm curious about that. Uh, I mean, because in Christianity and Judaism and Islam, they they really try to balance that fairly well, do they not? That God is God is the judge, but God is also all merciful. Depends who the they is, Fred. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the I think the the texts are um, assert both. What do, what do human beings do if they want to get people to act a certain way? They preach hellfire and brimstone, and um, there's a difference. I, I, I find there's always a difference between what texts say and then how people use them or the effect of a, te- of a text. And uh, some of the stu- – so uh, one of the famous books on um, co- religion and cooperation uh, argued that hell is a more powerful motivator than heaven and that punishment is a more co- powerful cooperator – sorry – more powerful cause of cooperation than compassion. I, 
to me, it's not a big surprise in some ways. Um, I, I think we are sort of natively pretty selfish. And, um, and unless there's some, um, unless there's some harm to avoid, we might try to get away with, with something that's not right. That's not how to be a flourishing human being, but that may be where human beings start, uh, in, in flourishing. So I, but I'm not making any big claims about what religion should or shouldn't do. I'm just noticing what psychologists have noticed. And that's this, that punishment gets, um, does better in getting people to cooperate than, um, than rewards do. Here's what I've noticed. Uh, and this is particularly in Christianity, maybe Judaism as well. Um, okay. So let's take Christianity just for a a moment. You have a wide spectrum from liberal to conservative, very conservative Christian denominations strongly encourage church attendance in Catholicism. You miss church. You know, that that's a significant sin. That's something that has to be confessed. Uh, And then you have, you know, all the way the other side, you've got people who say, no, 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 you, you don't have to attend church. That doesn't make God love you anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Those tend to be the churches that are really losing a lot of people because the, the, the young people growing up have been fed this idea. Look, you, you find out who you are and what your relationship with God in is, God is. And, and so these communities, I don't know if they're necessarily, some communities clearly are dying and others have been put on notice that something has to change because there's a lot of gray hair in these, in these pews. Yeah. Does that, does that work with what you're saying about the? Oh yeah. So psychologically, um, it turns out the most, the the most single, most important influence on a child is what their parents do. It's not what they say. It's what they do. And so, so what's happening and this is snowballed as increasingly as increasing number of adults have thought it's not that big a deal if you go to church or not, if they don't go, and their kids see them, and, and even if the parents say, yeah, well, this is, this is a good thing, even if they say that, but don't go, um, then the children learn, don't go. No matter what the parents say, even if they say it's good to go, it doesn't matter. We do as our parents do, not as they say. Um, and so I think what we're seeing, you know, people are, young people are leaving the church in droves. Um, and also, young people that aren't leaving actually are more attracted to more fundamentalist uh, churches and religions. So the more demanding um, our uh, churches are the ones that are doing better than the ones that aren't more demanding. And again, part of it is the sort of simple psychological, psychological or sociological um, fact. And that is in fundamentalist churches, they're more likely, likely to do what they say that at least that is at least attend church uh, regularly, maybe three times a week. Well, the kids are going to see what their parents do. They're going to they're going to learn that they should stick with it. Yeah, and uh, I also am aware that, say, in Catholic religious orders, there tends to be a spike in the more conservative orders. Then, and the liberal ones are those that are being challenged with bringing in new members, younger members. Yeah, so 
my view on that is pretty carrot and sticky too. I wouldn't choose celibacy. Celibacy. This is the problem with Catholic orders. You have to choose the. There's a price to pay. You can look at it in terms of dollars and cents. Here's a price to pay. Cel- lifetime celibacy. And what do you get? Uh, if you're liberal, you get a lifetime of extra hard work. And maybe you don't do or don't believe in the afterlife, or maybe you don't believe in the in the sort of vocation of the church the way people did, the way people might do in more conservative denominations. Um, and I think people will be increasingly unlikely to pay that price for it. And um, again, that fits in pretty well with the way our brains tend to work. You know, you, we want to get the best value for our money. That that reminds me of something I read in your book too. You say that as religion has evolved, there are certain ritual practices that seem to work in opposition of our evolutionary living and thriving, such as um, uh, offering virgins for sacrifice or celibacy. They, they, it, it's counterintuitive to the way evolution works because basically we're just here to reproduce as far as yeah. as far as uh, an uncaring universe goes I and mean, that's all they care about if you can't reproduce and nurture your young then what the heck are you doing here so if that is the case then how did these things seem to evolve even even the the offering of grain and animals in sacrifice um now and part of that if if these ancient people did offer grains and animals in sacrifice, did they just burn it up and let it go? It wasn't a matter of sharing the food after it went through some sort of ritual purification. Is that right? Well, it probably depends. I bet all sorts of things were tried. And um, so the question is, how, how could evolution, uh, sorry, how could religion have ever caught on um, if human beings evolved? You just think, well, uh, why doesn't, Why doesn't our sort of self? Why don't our sort of selfish genes override um, the? I guess these kind of essentially non-selfish or cooperative or group impulses that you find in religion. And uh, so some people just say it's it's an evolutionary puzzle, and uh, so religion is a weird thing to explain uh, evolutionarily. Uh, Others try to explain it in terms of the way I, I. imagined before that maybe it was evolutionarily necessary for human beings to learn how to become cooperators. Uh, and so that it improved cooperation and people that, and there are cooperative benefits. Like if, if we are able to work together in a community, we can raise more grain. We can have, we can share child rearing, which is super costly for mothers. Evolutionarily, it takes time away from getting food and <coughs> excuse me and you know fighting or whatever else someone might do uh but if you can share child rearing you have one mother uh or one man I, I don't know what people did back then watch five kids then you have four that can go out and uh gather crops well, no, that makes that makes perfect sense sacrificing sacrificing <clears throat> virgins to me does not that's that's my point or again while i certainly respect uh people who choose a celibate life it it you don't get it i don't i don't get it evolutionarily no i get it i get it spiritually i really do 
I don't get it evolutionarily. Yeah, I I would just say um, I don't have an uh, an explanation for virgin sacrifice or celibacy exactly, except I raise them as evolutionary problems. In general, I'll I I do think that a lot of rituals that human beings do are costly, and <clears throat> they're costly um, because. Uh, we have a police force, and we we have a military, and we have a court system. Early human beings didn't have that. And so early human beings had to have another way of making sure that people behave. And the other way that early human beings seem to have had is uh, God beliefs. It all, it all revolved around um, people's religious beliefs. And, well, then you have to know, like, who's a real believer? And that involves costly tends you know they don't happen very often but they might where you're signaling it's called costly costly signaling theory where you're signaling to another person that you're trustworthy by uh giving crops to god and burning them up like the more costly the more likely the more you should be trusted and so you're you're proving to someone else you're a cooperator and can be trusted and then if you trust me you'll share your crops with me later on and uh and i'll be able to sleep at night i know you're not going to come and kill me or something like that and so i think a lot of yeah serious rituals are ones where we're trying to prove to other people that we can be trusted including initiation some totally sometimes initiations uh, uh they they involve something more than just paying a few dollars a month dues yeah they can involve completely scarring someone's back and i i imagine many people died uh, you know, in the first 5,000 years of completely scarring a young man's back. Uh, I imagine a lot of young men got infections and died, but groups that did that overall were probably, uh, probably got more cooperative benefits than groups that didn't do that. Now, it's a silly thing that that's the thing that caught on. I don't know why that caught on. An anthropologist might be able to tell you uh, why that and not putting a few bucks in the in, in the, the collection pot. plate, but my yeah. guess is putting a few bucks in the co- collection plate is not really enough to tell if someone's a cooperator. Sure, I understand that. Uh, Kelly, we are down to the wire for this episode of Common Threads. I want to thank you so much for being here this week and last week as well. Uh, thank you, Fred, and everyone out there who has an interest in the book. Go ahead and put a five star review on uh, Amazon. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. And you can you have your own website, do you not? Yeah. What it, which is. It's kellyjamesclark.wix.com or something like that. Yeah, There's yeah. There's Wix in it somewhere. Yeah, so. I think it is. It's kellyjamesclark.wix, W-I-X.com. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. The book, God and the Brain, The Rationality of Belief, I, I highly recommend it. And please join us again next week right here on Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and this is WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org 
Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Common Threads.